<clears throat> There's a wonderful promise made here. Uh, the context is of Christ returning with his bride after the seven last plagues. And it says in verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So, at the beginning of the millennium, as the new heaven and the new earth come down, uh, God the Father and the Son, as we have shown in the past, contrary to what we used to believe, will be coming down at the beginning of the millennium to rule on the earth. Notice verse 4, and God, speaking of the bride here, the 144,000, that's the context, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. Now we've also described what that means. It doesn't mean that the earth is all going to be burned up at the end of the great white throne judgment at all. He is going to restore things so that they are in new, uncirculated, mint condition. Now let me go back for a moment now to Acts 3, and let's make that point a little stronger. Acts 3. Now here you are in the context of the Holy Spirit coming at the beginning of Acts 2. All kinds of miracles beginning to happen, of healings and various very dramatic occurrences, people having their minds changed and beginning to understand the truth of God for the first time and being baptized. So it was a time of great change, <clears throat> at least for a small amount of people. But notice verse 19 of Acts 3. Because of all these things that they were seeing, the miracles that God was doing, the drama of the whole thing, he says, Repent you therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal. So, he makes all those promises in Revelation 21. And it is a world that we cannot understand. We can't grasp it even in our wildest imaginations or fantasies. Because we have dealt with sorrow, with crying, with loss, with hurt, with need with insecurity, with violence, with death, with all manner of sorrow on this earth. And as you look around you today, wherever news is made or reported, we have a world full of pain and misery and sorrow. And you don't know anyone who does not have that to one degree or another. Depression, frustration, difficulties. He says no sorrow. No trouble <clears throat> among those people. Now that's a promise that God makes us. How do we get there from here? 
And how did we get there to here? These are fundamental questions we need to address. Was there a time when it was like that in the past? And if so, how did it, how did it deteriorate? How was it destroyed? And how do we get back there? <clears throat> we see a glimpse here in Acts 3 verse 19 that repentance or change is needed. Change of some kind is needed in order for the conditions that are promised in Revelation 21 to occur. I submit that there are a lot of things that must change in order to have that kind of society and culture where there are simply no problems among those people that are designated there. The first step appears to be to repent and be changed that your sins may be blotted out, that you will be sinless, that you will stand clean and pure before Christ and His Father as the Bride of Christ. Virgin in every way, thought, attitude, sin, everything blotted out, the slate made completely clean, <clears throat> that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal. So it is at His presence that this will occur. When He returns, we will have restored those conditions promised in Revelation 21. And He shall send Emmanuel, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Now Christ told them he would go up into the heavens to his Father, <clears throat> and he would stay there. He would send a comforter, which he had just done, to help, to strengthen, to guide, to lead. And he would stay there until his return. Now we've come <clears throat> to see... That when he first comes, he will bid his bride up to meet him in the air, the first resurrection. They will then go to the throne of God and be married on the sea of glass before the Father, Christ and the 144,000, his bride. The bride will then come back with him when Revelation talks about him coming back with a vesture dipped in blood riding on a white horse, his sword in his hand to put down the final rebellion. Then apparently, they go back to the Father, and there is a movement of the whole operation down to the site of the original Jerusalem, where the Father and the Son will rule the beginning of the millennium, and the Father and the Son will be the temple of that heavenly Jerusalem. We covered some of that in the last series on the temple right at the end. But it says, Christ will be there until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. 
You can go back and find what you can, not much from Enoch or Noah, but certainly from the prophets there, there forward, the things God did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then with Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all the prophets of the Bible. Moses was a prophet as well. And we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places prophecies of the future, even from Moses. Prophecies of this end time there in Deuteronomy 28 about the blessings and cursings, and we're getting the cursings now upon us in this nation and in the world. So Christ is going to return, and when he does, there's going to be a restitution of all things. Restitution of all things, then, has to encompass the conditions whereby there can be no crying, no pain, no suffering, no loss, no death, no negative emotion, no frustration, no depression, no loneliness, all those emotions and feelings that human beings deal with here in this life. Those will all go away for the bride of Christ. I think today, I want to, well, I don't think it, I believe it, and I'm going to do it. Uh, we are going to discuss our enemies. We are going to see how what we see in front of us, around us, and in us today, where and how that occurred, and what can be done about it. Now, this may take a sermon or two or three or five. I don't know. I don't think it'll be a real long series, but we need to understand. I think in some respects we do understand. There may not be an awful lot of new material here, but I think we can put it in a different light, a different slant perhaps, and in a context whereby we might understand better what is going on and how better to deal with it until the time of the restitution of all things when all goodness is restored. Now, we speak quite frequently, and probably with good reason, of our first enemy, and that is ourselves. Do I need to remind you of Jeremiah 17:9? We all probably know that one quite well. The human heart, the human mind, is deceitful and desperately not sort of, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And many scriptures even show that God himself ponders our hearts. He thinks about our emotions, our feelings, our reactions, our motives. Because the human heart, the human mind is very devious or deceitful, and it can deceive itself. It can try to deceive God. It can deceive other people. And we have at least two personas, that which we wrestle with within our minds, hearts, and emotions, and that which we portray or portray to others around us. And those are two totally different things. 
Often people say one thing and they're thinking something else entirely. They won't tell you often what they are really thinking. And very frequently what they say is nice and what they're thinking is naughty, to put it gently. Rarely, I think, do they say something naughty when they're thinking something nice. When they say something bad, that's probably pretty much true emotion. But quite frequently, we hide what we might really be feeling or thinking and go a different direction in order to portray an image that we would prefer people to see rather than what might really be there at times. In other words, we kind of have some of a dark side and some of a light side, don't we, as a human being, and the machinations of our minds as they are. So even God does not make an instant judgment on us, does he? Now, we make some pretty quick judgments on people too frequently. We see this or see that, and we think this and we think that, and we can very, very quickly categorize someone in our mind and emotions, put them in a specific pigeonhole, that's the way they are. And we might or might not be right. And we're making a judgment then that even God himself will not make. Let's understand that. He ponders our hearts. He watches us. He watches what goes through our minds, because he can read them. You can pray without uttering a word, mentally, and God hears it. He knows what's going on in your head. You can sin in your head, and he can read that too. Uh-oh. He knows our thoughts, good or bad. And reading the thought that is there, he then analyzes the motives behind those thoughts. He is making, over a period of time, a judgment on us. He is not hasty in that judgment. He is not quick to judge, not quick to condemn. And in fact, he does not want to condemn any human being. It is in his mind that everyone should have life and life more abundantly. He wants everyone to be saved. <clears throat> now, it isn't going to work out quite that way in spite of some of the universal theology that people propound. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be a Gehenna fire, and some, I think, few will go into it. But God is not going to be a failure. The vast majority of human beings, ultimately, through the process that God is, has got working, are going to be a part of the kingdom of God. And in fact, Romans eleven twenty six says, all Israel shall be saved. <clears throat> I don't think that means every individual. It's a general statement, but it means the vast majority, most of, or nearly all, when it says all because other scriptures indicate that there are some exceptions. But God is going to be successful. After all, he created the universe. He created everything within the universe. He has control of everything. And he can make things happen. Now, as he ponders us, if he has chosen to work with us 
in this age. Some are going to wait until the millennium to be worked with, some to the great white throne judgment. But those he chooses, with whom he chooses to work with during this age, he begins to do certain things. He works with us, he encourages us, he strengthens us, he gives us trials, troubles, tribulations, pain, chastening. Chastening is painful. In order to get us to think correctly, in order to get our attitudes adjusted. So he pulls those strings. He works with us. And we wonder, you know, we make judgments very easily. We say, well, so-and-so's having trouble. They must be sinning. Not necessarily. They might or might not be. But you cannot make that judgment. God says, if you do well, He will prune you so that you might produce even more fruit. So when you see someone having trouble, it may just be that they have been doing well and producing fruit, and they are being pruned so that they will do even better. Think about that. Pruning hurts. I pruned some trees just yesterday. And they began to kind of bleed and weep where I cut the limbs off. But they will be healthier, stronger, taller, better looking trees in the long run as a result of having been pruned. We are quick to judgment very frequently. And we don't have all the facts. We do not, cannot understand all the motives. We cannot read minds. We're shooting in the dark. We shoot from the hip when we make judgments about people. And we rattle off our judgment out of our rattling, empty head devoid of understanding, or thought at that moment at least, of what I'm saying right now, and that you understand and agree with, but sometimes forget about, and therefore rattle things that shouldn't be rattling around in your head, much less rattling your tongue. Because we don't know people that well. And even God himself, again, ponders thinks about, works with, juggles things around, pushes and pulls, blesses, curses, prunes. Whatever he feels is needful to cause you to grow, to repent, to change, to overcome, so that you can be part of his kingdom. Now, if we make those judgments, we are putting ourselves in place of God. That is idolatry. We are not qualified to make those judgments, and even he is not quick to them, though he can read thoughts. So we need to be very, very careful with our thought patterns, as we shall see. We are deceitful and desperately wicked. If we deceive ourselves about ourselves, how much do we see deceive ourselves about others? 
<clears throat> so, that is the first enemy, self. Let me back that up with one more. And I think we preach about our human nature and the works of the flesh and so on probably more than about anything else in terms of the negative side of things. But let's see here in verse uh, 12 of James 1. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Temptation is a part of the process of earning, or not earning, or being given the gift of the crown of life. Let's get that correct. He shall receive the crown of life, which the Eternal has promised to them that love him. And loving him means obeying him. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. 1 John 3, 5, or 5, 3. <clears throat> Verse 13. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God's laying this on me. God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He simply is unable, incapable of being tempted with evil. His character is so strong. He is so much in control, so mature in himself, that he cannot be tempted. It won't happen. Nor will he tempt anyone else. And that is part of his self-control. He doesn't tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We have desires, emotions, feelings, things that we think we like or want to do, and we can lust after those, whether it be too much food, wrong food, too much alcohol, drugs, uh, other things that might be harmful to our body, uh, tobacco, uh, sexual sins, just all kinds of things, uh, materiality, money, are familiar with so many things that human beings want or desire and then go do something to somebody, somehow, some way, to achieve. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Now in that, we have to understand that there is a process we have emotions or feelings, okay? Those emotions and feelings in a human being consist of selfishness, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy. That type of emotion is alive and well, well, sick really, but I mean it's alive and very vibrant within all of us. Pride, vanity, all that kind of thing is just a part of our nature. And those emotions or those desires in and of themselves are not necessarily sin. 
Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. In other words, when he was made a human being, he was given human nature so that he had the desire for wealth, he had the desire for sex, he had the desire for anything and everything that you have ever had a desire for. To be looked up to, to be proud, to be vain. I'm the Son of God, after all. Those emotions went through his cerebral cortex. Okay? They stopped right there. He did not allow them to conceive. He did not allow them to run through his mind until he gave in to those desires and actually sinned. Sin is an overt act. He even said in the Sermon on the Mount that if a man looked upon a woman to lust after her, it was sin. Now, if he sees a pretty woman and she is attractive to him or pleasing to the eye, that is not a sin. Not a sin. Now, if he lets that go through his mind and take his mind places it should not go, within the mind that is conceived and brought forth sin. Then if he gives in and does it physically, that is an additional sin on top of the first sin. That's the way it works. So the feeling or the temptation that comes is not in itself the sin. Because Christ was tempted to sin in all points like as we are. He had the feelings, the desire, the moment when those things came into his mind... And he could have allowed it to run, or he could stop it. And in every case, he was able to stop it. That's why he sits at the throne of God right now, and while we're still candidates. So God does not tempt us. We are the problem. The number one problem. We are our own worst enemy. That does not mean that is the only enemy we have. And that's what I want to get down to to discuss more today than the enemy within, that is, our own mind, our feelings, our thoughts, and everything that is a human being. Let's go to Ephesians 5. I'm laying the groundwork here to explain why we have the problems we have today how we got here, and ultimately, how we get beyond it. Ephesians 6, let's begin in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He goes on to explain what the armor of God is. But we have a problem in addition to ourselves. And that is the wiles of the devil. 
Now, when he says wiles of the devil, that includes a lot of territory. He has a lot of ways that he is able to influence human beings. Remember Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? Wiley dreamed up all different kinds of ways to catch the Roadrunner. The script was that he would never catch him, of course. But he went through all kinds of machinations and connived and figured out how to catch that roadrunner. He kept himself in trouble, yes, but he was trying to create trouble for the roadrunner. He wanted lunch. And Satan would like to breakfast, lunch, and dinner on us. And he is the wiliest coyote in the universe. He has many ways to bring about sin in our minds and bodies. He is not limited. So he tells us, put on the whole army of, of God, because we cannot, in and of ourselves, resist Satan and keep from sinning. It is impossible to do. We must have God's help if we are to cease and desist from sin. If we're even to cut it back substantially in our lives, we must have God's help, His Spirit, His inspiration, His strength, His armor, in order to deflect the arrows, the spears, the bullets of Satan the devil. Verse 12, he lays it out. <clears throat> For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our troubles are not just human. It isn't our neighbor's. It isn't our physical human enemies. It isn't even our own nature within our cranium that we wrestle about against, but we have another very, very strong, capable enemy. Not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. So there are beings, there are principalities that are in a position still of leadership or rulership. He's speaking of Satan and the demons here. But remember there in Daniel where uh, the archangel was trying, Michael I think it was, was trying to get to Daniel to deliver a message. But the prince of Persia, uh, in metaphor, Satan the devil, stopped him. They were of equal power. They had both been archangels. One was fallen. The other was still an archangel. But Satan still had the power of that office. And Michael alone could not get past Satan to get the message to Daniel. Daniel, poor fellow, had to fast 21 days. God, why don't you answer me? Hear me. Help me, O oh God. I sent a message. Uh, oh, it didn't get there yet. God finally sent Gabriel. And between the two archangels, they were over, able to overpower the one. And the message got through after 21 days. So understand that there are principalities out there who still hold office. 
who still have power. We're going to see that very clearly here in a little bit, or tomorrow, next time, whatever. So the principalities, what is a principal? Principal of the school, someone in charge of the school. Someone in a governmental position, a position of power and authority. So that's what a principality is. Against powers. Those principalities have power. And as we just saw in the example, a great deal of power. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. This world is ruled by the powers of darkness. We'll see that defined as Satan and his demons. They are in charge of the world. They are in charge of the cultures and the societies of the world. They run everything on this earth, including the governments of men. They have the power to influence human leaders to do evil, atrocious, rotten, wretched things. Now, God allows those rulers to be placed there. And in fact, in Daniel 4, he tells us that he sets over the nations the basest of men. It is the worst men who climb up, worm their way through society, and wind up in positions of power. To become a leader and a ruler of a nation in the world today, most generally in a world ruled by Satan, you have to be a liar, you have to be a thief, you have to be unscrupulous, ruthless, walk on people, pull them down the ladder from above you and take their place. That's what politics is all about. And if it isn't in a so-called free election, then it's just plain old who has the biggest, strongest hands and weapons to become the king, dictator, whatever. That's the way it's done. It is a world ruled by confusion and chaos and selfish, idolatrous, evil men. God says that very clearly. Oh, it's not just those men then, but the motivators behind those men. The evil ones that we do not see are the ones that those people are responding to through emotions, through feelings. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Mr. Armstrong used to very frequently say that he broadcasts like radio or television waves, microwaves. You can't see them, but they're there. And those can interact with your mind, your feelings, and your emotions, and they can create impulses within your mind. An impulse to do this. Have you ever noticed that you might be thinking about this, maybe even praying about this, and first thing you know, your mind has gone off over here somewhere? Well, Father, I, I meant to be praying about something, and suddenly my mind is way far away from that. I'm thinking about something entirely different. Or maybe you're talking in a conversation with someone, and you're having maybe a pretty good conversation, and part of your mind goes somewhere else. Some kind of an impulse. 
and very frequently a negative one. So that we can be talking and our mind is partially on what we are saying and it can be a good thing, but at the very same time our mind can be bombarded by an emotion, a thought, a feeling from somewhere else that might not be a good one. We've all experienced that, experience it probably every day, where our mind's trying to go two or ten different ways at once, and you have to focus, you have to control, and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, because Satan is broadcasting lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, selfishness, vanity, pride, all those natural emotions of the flesh, he is able to amplify and he is able to even cause an impulse of those things to come into our minds and feelings. And we might not even know it. Have you noticed that sometimes you can have your mind going a certain direction and you may even know what a lot of your weaknesses are, okay? You know you have a problem with this, 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 and that over there as well. You know what your weaknesses, the, the areas that need work. You may be strong in some areas, you may be weak in others. And human beings all have problems, but they all have different problems. Of course, everybody's overlap because they're their own. But we all have a certain amount of selfishness, a certain amount of pride, vanity, ego, uh, lust, vanity, jealousy. All those things are right there as a part of our nature. Sometimes you may have a thought that you say, that's not my normal sinful way of thinking. Where did that thought come from? It's even foreign or strange to me. You know, I'm but I'm going to show you how he does it. And how you have to handle it. So, the rulers of the darkness of this world want us to be part of this world, to be like it, to think like it, to act like it, and go to Gehenna fire as a result of it. That's what they want. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan the devil is spiritual wickedness, as are his demons, and they are still in high places. He still has the power of Michael or Gabriel. Gabriel. He still goes before the throne of God. He is allowed there right now. On the very sea of glass before the throne of God the Father and His Son, as an accuser of the brethren. He is the original, the greatest, the most powerful, and the most knowledgeable accuser of the brethren in the universe. That is one of his major functions. It is one of his major desires and goals, especially those of the truth and those of the faith of God. They are special targets, bullseyes for him. 
He has most of the world pretty much under his control, okay? Witness it, look at it, obviously. There are a few who have been called out, who have had the blindness and the darkness of the world stripped away to one degree or another. They have a chance to be part of the Bride of Christ and have all their sorrow, their pain, and their misery removed. And those are the ones that are his primary targets. Understand that. When Christ was on this earth as a human being, who was Satan's biggest target? Who did he inspire, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, other people, to attack and to be against? Who did he fight the hardest? If he could have gotten Christ to sin one time, just once, he would have won and he would be the king of the universe today. It never happened. The Father and the Son, together, were stronger than Satan. And they still are. There was a titanic battle after Christ fasted those 40 days. And Satan used every wile, every cunning, every human emotion, every desire that Christ might have for power, for food, for drink whatever he thought might be the greatest pressure point he put on him. And Christ withstood it. But there is great power there. I kid you not. And if Christ was his greatest target, who is his second greatest target, brethren? The potential bride of Christ. Right now, Christ is out of his reach. He tried and failed. The bride, he still has a chance at. And he takes every chance he can to betray you and me. He makes a cacophonous noise at the throne of God about you and me daily. It is one of his primary objects, one of his primary as he sees it duties to accuse us of everything he can possibly find to accuse us of and to take it to God the Father and his Son every day. He goes before the throne of God and accuses you and me. He can read our thoughts too. He can plant thoughts in our minds. He can watch them germinate He can watch them lead us into sin. And then he takes that sin before God and says, Did you see so-and-so down there? You know, that must become wearying for God. Every fault, every wrong thought, every sin that you and I perpetrate and commit on this earth goes not necessarily to God through his keen eyesight, hearing, in capacity to read thoughts and minds. He is quite capable of recognizing our faults himself. 
But he has this other being there that shoves it in his face constantly, consistently, daily. Did you see? Yes, I saw it. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I saw it. Or maybe he's more patient and not sarcastic and he says, yes, I saw it. I'm working with that person. I'll fix it. That is what is going on up there every day of your life and my life. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is spiritual wickedness in high places. You don't get any higher than the throne of God, which is where he is today. He is there. He is reading your thoughts and mind as we sit in this building hearing about God's Word today. God knows, and Satan knows, where your mind is, what you're thinking, good, bad, or indifferent. And he says, hey, see that? Third row, fifth row, sixth row? Oh, you see that? You see what that person just thought? Yes, I did. My my attention's there too. We have more of Satan's attention than anyone else on earth out of close to seven billion people. When I say we, I mean those called out ones in the greater church of God from whom few are being chosen. God is pondering the hearts, the minds, the thoughts and making selections as we will through life as to whether we'll be a part of that 144,000 or not, whether we'll be protected when the times of trouble come, or whether we will go into the tribulation like 90% of the called-out ones will. Final test is coming fairly soon. Will we pass the exam? This whole thing is an exam. We have to answer the questions one by one, day by day. God has to answer the questions in his own mind as he ponders our hearts. And we have demons and Satan with ability to fly about, not be seen, to move faster than the speed of light between earth and the kingdom of God. Great power is there. And great power to rest and twist our minds and emotions. So that's what we are up against. We have essentially two major enemies. Ourselves and Satan the devil. Let's go back to Isaiah 14 and see this a little more clearly. You know... The way Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are worded, uh, they seem to merge between starting out speaking of a human being and then morph into Satan. It's kind of a strange way, in a sense, that those two chapters are written, and they do wind up talking about Satan. And I think... Part of the reason for that, and I I, I had always noticed it, and I don't guess I ever really 
thought about it or comprehended why it was that God put it that way or had the prophet write it that way. But it has an awful lot to do about what we've been talking about so far today. And that is that we are here as human beings, that God created emotions and feelings and thought patterns within. But we do have those principalities and powers of the air who do influence us, and I discussed how they will influence the leaders and rulers of the world. So, you might have a human being who acts, thinks, walks and talks a lot like Satan, walking in the darkness of this world, and then find that he is influenced by Satan very heavily, even possessed at times, perhaps like Hitler was at times, and others. Stalin, maybe some American presidents of the past. Who knows how much influence has been there. But it comes to the point where you can hardly tell the difference. And I think these were written that way for that purpose. You can hardly tell the difference here where... The man stops and Satan starts because the influence is so heavy. Let's see that here in chapter 14 of Isaiah. For the eternal will have mercy on Jacob and will yet, in the future, yet, going to do it, choose Israel and set them in their own land and the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. So at a time in the future... God is going to work with Israel, and he's going to bring other peoples in with them. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the eternal for servants and handmaids, and take them captives. I'm not talking about the kingdom of God here yet, because that wouldn't happen then, because of the sorrow and the pain and the misery that that kind of thing can occur. Anyway, it shall come to pass in the day that the Eternal shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. In other words, you're still under sorrow, pain, fear, death, crying, tears, and all those things. The day is coming when that will be taken away. Now, where does he be turn next? in this context. Verse 4. You were made to serve unto these things, that you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How has the oppressed ceased, the golden city, or the taxer, or the uh, taker of gold, as it can be translated, ceased? When things turn good, you can say, Boy, how did that get fixed? How did all that evil get taken away? The Eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers, the power, the rod of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. We have leaders in the world today who maim, kill, destroy, other nations, other peoples, commit genocide. It's been going on since the very beginning. When one brother rose and killed the other brother. 
There are only four people on the earth at that point, perhaps. Well, Seth and some of the others may have been children still, but there weren't many people around. So Cain almost committed genocide right there. I mean, wham, he got a fourth or a sixth or an eighth of the population of the earth by killing one brother. So this goes back a long time. It goes back even before that, really, when one instigator took a third of the angels of God and spiritually slew them, took them away from God. So it started a long, long time ago, didn't it? So you see people like Nebuchadnezzar or other evil kings, Gentile or Israelite kings, who would not follow the ways of God. And even in our lifetime, if we're older, we've perhaps witnessed Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, some of the evil rulers of the world, FDR, name a bunch. who have oppressed the people, even as people are being oppressed around the world by their leadership today. He says, The Eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers, and he is the only one that could stop the continual stroke. And then, notice 7, The whole world is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. So he's talking about a pivotal time here, a time of restitution of the good, when God takes away the evil. Read Revelation 20, where Christ takes Satan the devil and binds him a thousand years. The times of restitution starts there by getting rid of one of the biggest major problems. The fir trees rejoice at you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid down, no feller is come up against us. Since whoever this is speaking of, Nebuchadnezzar as a type, the trees, men are, our trees are a metaphor for men in the Bible and for churches. They quit knocking us down. The trees are safe. The axe is put away. Verse 9, the grave from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. What does Christ do? He says he'll give us life eternal. The last enemy that is to be conquered is death. Last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. So this is speaking of the time Christ comes and puts down the principalities and powers of the world. It stirs up the dead for you, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say to you, Are you also become weak as we? Are you become like us? And here it morphs into Satan. Not a human king such as Nebuchadnezzar, but the real ruler of the whole earth currently. Your pomp is brought down to the grave. Now Nebuchadnezzar is a wicked king and a type of all wicked leaders is used here. But God will take down the wicked human leaders and He will take down the biggest motivator behind those human leaders, Satan the devil and his demons. 
Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials. The worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. Now that could apply to a man dying like Nebuchadnezzar, but it could also refer to not the death of Satan, but his pomp, his glory, his office, his power being taken away, and he becomes as dead. When he is chained for a thousand years, he will be alive but as dead, unable to influence anyone, anywhere, any way, completely salted away, so he can have no effect upon people, upon angels, upon God, and will not be there as a fly around God's face accusing us day and night. He'll be gone, put away. How can this happen, a being of such power? Verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Hillel, son of the morning? Lucifer is a very bad translation there. Uh, that is not Satan's name. It might even be an application to Christ himself. We're told in the book of Revelation that Christ is the light bringer. Revelation 22, I think it is. Now that is difficult to consider as a thought. When I have thought of Lucifer being Satan all my life, and I think maybe that name could apply to Christ, I can't call Christ Lucifer. My mind won't do that. <laughs> it's been the other way too long. And I don't even necessarily want to go there. But, uh, let's see, what verse is this I want down here? It's toward the end. Uh, verse 16. I, Emmanuel, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now, Satan was a being of light. He was a light of the morning at one time. He was one of the cherubim that covered the throne of God. He was in the light. His mind, his attitude, his motivations, his feelings were all pure and good and clean and bright and light. So he could have been called a son of the morning. But then darkness came. And he became evil and malicious, murderous, hateful. And he had no longer had light. He is total darkness today. No light at all. Now, Christ came to this earth, lived perfectly, brought the light of God to the earth, and qualified as the future ruler of the earth. So he took the title of light bringer, morning star. They are now his, not Satan's, because Satan is the spirit of darkness now, and Christ is the spirit of light. Now, he was before he came here. But since Satan had been placed as the ruler of the earth in the kingdom of God... He had to have disqualified himself 
and then someone else had to qualify to take his place. And that's what that battle was about after Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Christ came out the total winner and Satan the total loser. So all the good titles, ruler of the earth, light bringer, son of the morning, whatever might have applied to what Satan was as a good being, has now gone to Christ, where it belongs. But the word in the Hebrew here is Heliel, number 966, I think it is. Not Lucifer. Bad translation. I find it interesting that both Gehenna, fire, and Sheol, the place, or Tartaru, the place where the angels are held, have all been translated hell in the King James translation. They depict different places and different times for different beings. Hades or Gehenna just being, or not Gehenna, but Hades being the grave where we go when we physically die. But we call it hell. Well, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Satan is trying to destroy us off. His name was Heliel. <laughs> and the place that he's trying to get us is called hell. How are you fallen? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? We don't need to go into all the ways he might weaken the nations or us. We need to understand his wiles and his ways. But the point there, bottom line is, he is able to weaken. He can weaken your resolve. He can weaken your commitment. He can weaken your focus. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be above the angels. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Well, the Psalms tell us that God's throne from the perspective of earth, is in the north, the sides of the north. And there's where Satan said, I will rule. I will have supremacy. I will take over. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, the third heaven, in other words. I will be like the Most High. I think in his own mind he meant, I will be the Most High. I will take over the throne and the sides of the north and put myself above the angels. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. You dreamed, you fantasized, you were going to rule the universe, but you're going to be brought down. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man, the being? that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms. Satan is able to shake nations and kingdoms by influencing evil rulers to make war against them and destroy their whole culture. Genocides occur, have 
still are this very day. There are people all over the earth who are trying to destroy other races, other nations, other peoples as we sit here today. It's coming here soon. In fact, it's flooding across our southern borders just as fast as they can bring them in. Not keep them out, bring them in. On purpose. To destroy us. That's what they're doing. Bringing all manner of disease, all manner of gangs, murderers, of all races. Not just Mexicans or Costa Ricans, but Africans, Islamics. They're all flooding across the border. And no one is trying to stop them. We're putting them on planes and buses and shipping them all over the country. That is high treason, brethren, against you and me. Destroying this country that God gave us. Satan is able to shake the earth and the kingdoms. And he wants Israel destroyed above all other nations. God has protected Israel up to this point. But he's removing it. The blessings are being taken away and the cursings have already started. And we are a sick nation, physically, mentally, emotionally, morally, spiritually, and in every way. We are a sick people from the head to the foot, as the prophet said. That's where we are. And only a few are struggling against that. It's not just our leaders. Come on. You want to blame our leaders? The people are liars, thieves, immoral, ungodly. The leaders simply come from among the ranks of the people. Blame the leaders all you want. We ought to all look in our own closet and find our own skeletons because those leaders are only a reflection of us. Sorry. That's the way it is. That made the world as a wilderness. Now there's one of Satan's goals. He wants to make this world a wilderness. He is motivating human men behind the scenes, what we call the illumined ones. <laughs> they call themselves illumined. The ones who have the truth, know the way, and have the light. They are the rulers of darkness. They are in darkness. Many of them are outright Satan worshipers, worshiping the powers of darkness. But they call themselves illumined. And they have stated here and there that they intend to kill 90% of the people on the earth. That is their goal. That is their purpose. And they are fast initiating the plan and getting it accomplished very rapidly now so Satan is accomplishing what he wanted to make the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof Satan is behind the destruction of the populations of the cities of this earth today he's the one doing it he's motivating people to do it he puts thoughts, impulses, 
attitudes and motives in their minds, and then they go out as his little puppets and accomplish it. Let's not underestimate the power that is there and realize that we are his biggest target. Read Revelation 12. He is before the throne of God now and allowed to be there to accuse you and me primarily. Got the world in his pocket. He accuses you and me. When he is cast down for the last time, he doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to New York. He doesn't go to a false Jerusalem. He comes to the true Jerusalem to try to kill all the people of God, the people who are qualifying to be the bride of Christ. He immediately sends an army of men to kill us all. First thing he does when he's cast out. His focus right now before the throne of God, today, this moment, he is before the throne of God accusing you and me. And when he is cast down, that focus will not change at all. He will immediately come after us. He knows where the light is. You know, it doesn't take much light in a dark world to be seen. At night, you can be driving and see a light off in the distance. It isn't a very big light. Maybe somebody's porch light. You know, it can be five, ten miles away. You can see it clearly. I've been in places where I could see the lights of a town 30, 40, 50 miles before I ever got there. You drive and you drive and you drive and you see it. Where is it? It's there. Keep driving. You'll find it. If you have the light of God, His Spirit, in your mind, Satan can see it. He can discern it. The Spirit of God hurts his eyes. He hates it. And if you have it, he hates you. Let's understand what we're up against. He is going to kill 90% of those whom God has called out in the Great Tribulation through his illumined ones. He destroyed the cities, but opened not the house of his prisoners. He's not going to let anybody in this world off scot-free. He's not going to turn them out of the prison that he has made. The wretchedness of this prison planet we live in are on. His evil pervades the air, prince of the power of the air. And it is able to plant thoughts in your mind. Scary business. You think not? Well, where did all these people around this world who are full of evil come up with that evil? Where did it come from? Let's go. What time is it? Let's don't go there. Let's go eat. We'll pick it up next time.